Well, welcome back as we head into hour two. This one's important, folks. Uh, Ellie Wiesel once said that um, memory is at the heart of redemption, just as forgetfulness is at the heart of exile. There are things we need to remember, uh, not only about this country, but about our history and the rest of the world. And there are people who are monuments that help us remember the importance of those things, what we call the durables. One of those great people and one of those great statues to American greatness is the chairman of uh, our House of Representatives here in Arizona, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee at the state legislature. He represents Legislative District 1 here in Arizona. He is my friend, Kwong Nguyen. Chairman Wynn, thanks for being with us. Appreciate your service. You celebrated an important anniversary yesterday. Tell the audience about yes, that. Yes, sir. Well, yeah. Seth, you know, it's great to see you and Steve last week for dinner. And uh, I uh, feel very humble because I'm always sitting in front of very, very bright and smart people. And so I really appreciate on that, and I, I know you're extremely thoughtful whenever you decide to give me a call and ask me to be on there. But uh, but yesterday was uh, the commemoration of 48 years ago when I left Vietnam on a C-130 gunship uh, to uh, eventually come to this country and eventually being an American, eventually work in you know various companies in America and now being at the legislature. So... Um, I, uh, I don't have a, another, uh, uh, I don't have a sophisticated word to describe my life other than I'm just grateful. I think that's the, about the only word that accurately describe how I feel. Gratitude is a, uh, it's a missing virtue in our society. And I think for a lot of people who grow up here, we take too many things for granted. Tell the audience how you grew up and how you came to America physically, literally. Tell, tell the audience about your, your upbringing and, and, and your moving here. So, so thank you. Great question. I, uh, I was born in Vietnam in 1962, up in the highlands, about 200 miles north of Saigon, north-northeast of Saigon. And I was just a little kid there, moving around because my dad was in the service. He spent 19 years in the South Vietnamese Army fighting uh, communists, um, you know, for, for his in, entire adult life. And uh, so we moved down to Saigon, and in 1968, I actually experienced the very first of three invasions uh, from, you know, North uh, Vietnamese. And that was called the Tet Offensive, and if you know history at all, you know what happened. That was an incursion uh, that happened throughout the entire southern part of Vietnam. And uh, obviously, the goal was to take over and to destroy freedom. And so I went through that one. And, uh, you know, eventually I grew up to, you know, 1972 when we had the spring offensive where as many as 70,000 South Vietnamese soldiers were killed during that incursion. Now, think about it. In 20 years, we lost 58,000 yeah. Americans yeah. Yeah. wound up on this. You know, beautiful wall. Yeah. granite wall yeah. on the wall in yeah. Washington D.C. Yeah. and here we have seventy thousand soldiers lost in one summer. Incredible. Uh, Incredible. That that is a number that uh, you know just trying to line up fifteen people in your living room, right? And then you see how many people that is, and yeah. you think about the seventy-two thousand. Gives me chills. Uh, people. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. And and I used to live across the street from a a, a, a pagoda 
where the bodies and the pine boxes. And by the way, when I say pine boxes, I meant pine boxes. They were very nice uh, boxes to put bodies in there. And they would come home by the truckload every single day to be, uh, you know, to to receive prayers and for the parents to come out. And I can tell you, uh, Seth, um, as a little kid, Every night, um, I, I slept on the floor, and I hear these moms were just wailing um, over their son's bodies, and you, you, you can't help but cry for these parents, and I, that's how, pretty much how I grew up. Yeah. And then eventually, the final ev- uh, in, uh, incursion w- happened in 1975 in April, and uh, you all have seen the helicopter yes. on top of the uh, the the, the, embassy, the building, yeah. uh-huh. the embassy, and also one uh, over the hotel as well. Yeah. And when you, when you know, it's recent history, Seth, and I hope you don't mind me going on. I w- please go on. This is important. Yeah. Please do. It it's recent history, and when when you look at those black and white pictures, uh, you think of. Uh, you think of World War II, the Korean War, yeah. things that happened so long ago that we forget. But um, here I am, you know, somebody who experienced that, uh, who is on the radio with you right now. So it's it's very recent history, and the the, the human the human loss in that war was incredible. But I know. I'm supposed to be talking to you about the Vietnam War, but I know that you're a historian. There's something that we don't talk about anymore, which is the killing fields in Cambodia. Please, please. Between 1976 and 1978, yeah. Pol Pot took over and killed nearly 2 million people, yeah. slaughtered them. But we don't talk about that anymore. Um so why is it important in my life? I'll tell you why it's important in my life. The Democrat Party, the 93rd Congress, defunded both the Vietnam and the Cambodian campaign. Right when we were turning things really well. Things were really yes, getting going. Yep, yep. And the 94th Congress had an opportunity to fix what the 93rd... Yep. Made ...their mistake. Yep. But it didn't fix it either. No. Nope. And so now... Some of those politicians actually made it, um, and still in office today, and one of them is Joe Biden. Yep. Uh, the other important character was um, uh, Ted Kennedy, yep. and nobody talked about it either. That's right. But because of their actions back then between the 93rd and the 94th Congress, you have 2 million people slaughtered in Cambodia, which we don't talk about anymore. Right. We don't talk about a killing field. Right. Um, and, and I, I'll just give you some stats that happened after the fall of Saigon. About 85,000 South Vietnamese soldiers were executed. Many of them went to re-education camps, and, and that's usually what they call it. They call it re-education camps. Yeah, and then, yep, and then the Red Cross came up with a very conservative number of about 250,000 drowned in the Pacific Ocean. Wow during the the exodus i mean i don't know where we will go on to be honest to you uh, you you get on the raft and you start rowing away from mainland where are you going i don't know right um 
But this is important. I got onto the C-130 with an older brother, and we flew to the Philippines, not knowing that my mom and dad and my entire family was, you know, my entire family was on the barge, floating from the Saigon River out to the ocean. And luckily for them, the USS, um, oh, I I, I forgot the, uh, the name of the ship. Uh, but anyway, uh, a U.S. Navy ship was, you know, was out in the ocean and they got picked up. Um, so I think that uh, somebody up high was looking down at us and said, you know what, uh, I, I think today is going to be your lucky day. Um, so that's how it all started. And my journey went to the Philippines and went on to Guam and I was there on for seven days, uh, getting vaccinated, getting uh, paperwork done, getting vetted, and then on to Travis Air Force Base. Now, so you being a historian, you must know the story. Um, Governor Brown, Moonbeam at the time, yeah. uh, sent staff members to the Travis Air Force uh, Air Base to try to stop Jerry the C-130s yeah. from right. coming in. That's right. That's right. And and I'll paraphrase one of his comments is that um, these people will never learn to speak English. They will never adapt. Um, they will uh, use up all the natural resources, all the resources of the state of California. Um, so we can't have them here. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, not only he's wrong, but. He, he didn't want a symbol. He didn't want a symbol. He didn't want a statue. He didn't want a memorial to what the Democratic Party had failed the world of freedom upon. That's that's what he was afraid of. He didn't want to highlight the failure of right. his own party. Let me take a quick commercial break if I can, Chairman yes, Wynn, and we'll come back on the other side of this break. This testimony, this living testimony is so important. Uh, Kwong Wynn, chairman of our State House Legislature's Judiciary Committee, who better could be there but him? What a great American. What a great and important story for us all to learn. Chairman Wynn and I will be right back. In his farewell address to the nation from the Oval Office in the White House in 1989, Ronald Reagan said this. He said, Quote, I've been reflecting on what the past eight years have meant and mean, and the image that comes to mind like a refrain is a nautical one, a small story about a big ship and a refugee and a sailor. It was back in the early 80s at the height of the boat people, and the sailor was hard at work on the carrier Midway, which was patrolling the South China Sea. The sailor, like most American servicemen, was young, smart, and fiercely observant. The crew spied on the horizon a leaky little boat, and crammed inside were refugees from Indochina hoping to get to America. The Midway sent a small launch to bring them to the ship and safety. As the refugees made their way through the choppy seas, one spied the sailor on deck and stood up and yelled to him, Hello, American sailor. Hello, freedom man. A small moment with a big meaning, a moment the sailor who wrote in a letter couldn't get out of his mind. And when I saw it, neither could I, because that's what it meant to be an American in the 1980s. Our guest, uh, Chairman Kwong Nguyen, the Arizona State Legislature, a couple years earlier, that could have been your parents, huh, Chairman? Yeah, um, 
during the break, I remember the name of the ship, the USS Miller. There it is. Yeah. Yep. Except my mom and dad. Yeah. And uh, and as they were pushing a uh, a helicopter that was the, with the blade still spinning, and that blade hit the deck, and a piece of that metal hit my dad on the forehead. Oh, it wasn't uh, a big injury, but it's a tiny little speck of metal. Yeah. It hit him on the forehead, and um, but um, but I do want to tell you that. Um, there is no greater country in the world. Uh, somebody just wrote on my Facebook that uh, that Americans came to the Southeast Asia and committed genocide. And I have to defend America by saying, you know what? Actually, you forgot why Americans were there because of communist achievement. There's, uh, yeah, there's this fascination anew, a renewed fascination Maybe it's not renewed. Maybe it's just new. There's this new fascination with communism in this country where we have sanitized and detoxified all that we used to know stood for and represented represented chairman. Would you tell the young people of this country and this audience, certainly, what communism means, what it really is? Well... The, 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 it's a very noble concept, right? I mean, it, it's great. Everybody is going to be equal. And, but so far, through the years that I have experienced, and my parents obviously living under Ho Chi Minh, I can honestly tell you that everybody is equal, but equally poor, equally miserable. Death is pretty certain. There's no way getting around it. And all the fat cats are still at the top, and they call themselves the leaders of the communist movement. And when I go into a website called, uh, uh, what is it, uh, USA Communist Party or yep. Communist Party yeah, USA. Yeah, CPUSA, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so when you go into the website, what's disturbing to me is all the young faces. Yeah. Okay. And I got to tell you, this is very simple. I operate from a common sense kind of deal. And I will tell you that it's really easy to defend communism when you're pretty happy with your iPhone, yep. your your barbecue on Saturday, yep. uh, nice steak during you know the weekdays, yep. uh, or even McDonald's or whatever it is that you eat. Uh-huh. It's really easy to defend communism when you are absolutely full in the stomach. Yep. But the problem with communism is when they take over. Death, the first people they executed are the happy ones. Yep. Because, you know, we want to make sure you understand that you can't be happy. You know that, right? You're too happy, we're going to get rid of you. So I think in the previous show, I did say that the three things that would, would allow communism to take over any society. Number one, you got to take away guns. Yep. Okay. So just to let you know this year, and your audience understand, just to let you know this year alone, as chairman of judiciary, I killed 11 anti-Second Amendment bills. Good 11. You. Good for you. They keep just trying. Imagine, That's the point you're making. They keep coming at you. They keep trying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just imagine when we lose, or if we lose the House and the, and the Senate in uh, 24, it'll be 24 and not 11. Yeah. yeah. Right? Right. So... And I'll just say this, and, and I try not to be political today, but I can't help it, is that the line between losing and winning the Second Amendment is 
the Republican Party, yeah. not any other party, not the Patriot Party, not anybody. It's the Republican Party that will defend the Second Amendment, yeah. and I'm right at the heart of that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so when you when you look at it, and you said, you know, what is communism about? It's about control. Yeah. It's about telling you what to do, when to wake up, when to go to work, and what kind of work you're going to be doing today. It has nothing to do with you wanting to be a dentist. It has nothing to do with you being so smart that we're going to have to put you in some kind of a science program to make you a great person. It's about Seth never going to be on the radio again. It's about Kwong dying somewhere because you committed all these sins against communism. You spoke out against communism. That's it's it's all about. Just being miserable. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what else to say other than I just know what to say. I know what to say. If there was a smart bone in somebody that wants to preserve this country, they would have you speaking in every school throughout the state of Arizona with your story. Honest to God, Kwong, because. The textbooks and the history books that our children are getting, they whitewash and sanitize everything you've said about communism while they make America look like the down market commodity responsible for the evils of the world. And even if half of them accept and buy that, you think about three million students graduating high school with those thoughts in their heads every year, and you wonder how we have the kind of country – we have. That's how. You are the antidote. Your testimony is the antidote. You are the freedom man that needs to be in our schools and talking about this all the time. All the time. I'm going to give you as much air as you want over the next course of your, as long as I'm on this radio show and as long as you have a, a breath to breathe, Kwong, because this is the most important testimony that our country's children can hear. You are oh, a living and, and monument, I, and I want your voice loud and strong. It, it is um, amazing that you would afford me this opportunity to do this, to get, to get my voice out, to get the story out. Only in America, I, Juan. Only in I America. am so appreciative of the Freedom School at uh, University of Arizona for allowing me to speak the students here, um, if you recall, we passed House Bill 2008, yep. teaching of the evils of communism, yep. and this is going to be implemented throughout our high school Good. Uh, Good. in the state of Arizona, and, and uh, University of Arizona did a, a wonderful job in uh, in the Ben Toma story. And yeah. Oh, yeah, i got to get Ben on, too, and tell his... Well, listen, happy anniversary. Thanks for making this country better. Thanks for being with me. Thank you, my friend, and I look forward to our next uh, You betcha. Meeting. You betcha. Uh, God bless you, Take sir. good care. Godspeed. God yes. Bye-bye. Threats to our financial freedom and stability are growing. China, Russia, India, Brazil, and Saudi Arabia are conducting international trade and local currencies, not the U.S. dollar. Rising interest rates and bad loans are exposing the banking system and causing failures. The Biden administration sends hundreds of billions abroad while depleting our strategic oil reserves and ignoring crumbling infrastructure. However, the biggest financial threat may be coming from within. Central bank digital currency is real. The patents have been filed and the big banks have released plans for implementation. 
The vets at Midas Gold Group see devastating implications. The end of cash, the end of financial privacy, big government able to see your every purchase. Could there be ties to social credit? Own private currency, gold and silver. Now, get free silver just for asking Midas Gold Group how you can use your retirement to own physical gold. Call the Midas Gold Group today at 480-360-3000. That's 480-360-3000. Or check them out online at MidasGoldGroup.com. Now, David, and I see Bill is there too from his high up perch and management. Um, I heard right before this segment, someone, one of you, said something is frowned upon. I don't want to know what the something is because it might be embarrassing to someone or something. But this notion that X can be frowned upon, that just, that just got my wheels churning. <laughs> what does it mean, frowned upon? It means you can still do it. It's not the violation of a law. The reason I ask, manners, Edmund Burke said, are more important than laws. Manners are what vex or soothe. And I was in a shopping center today, and I saw that the shopping center, it's an outdoor strip mall, has a code of conduct posted. And I thought that was funny. Um, I thought it was interesting, too. And I wonder if this is going to be the wave of the future or if these things are even necessary. I took a picture of it. The Code of Conduct. It says, thank you for visiting in order to provide a safe and enjoyable experience for all guests. The following activities are prohibited and will be viewed as trespassing. Violations of the law, any activity that threatens the safety of guests, tenants, or employees, an activity that damages or defaces the property, an activity that disturbs a pleasant family-oriented shopping environment, any activity that would disrupt the operation of the shopping center or tenants. Now, why do you need to post that following the law will be enforced, that we will be enforcing the following law? Do we not just all assume the laws are going to apply everywhere and abide all the time? They go further. This may get us into the frowned-upon area. Examples of specific activities that are prohibited include but are not limited to vulgar language or threatening behavior, illegal possession of firearms or weapons, intoxication, littering, overnight parking, no trespassing. The center is a privately owned. Da, da, da. And I just it's it's odd to me that we have to now post the laws that we all assumed we had to live by anyway. Do you think it makes a difference that they post these laws? Do you think if someone is going to break a law, a security guard will point to him and say, you're breaking the law? I I don't understand this necessity to restate the ordinary operations of business or humanity, the ordinary civic rituals we're supposed to all abide by. Have we reached such a low point in civil society? Have we become so aggressive towards one another and so, what, uh, callous towards our fellow human beings that we now have to post regular rules of civility? Maybe, maybe. It's a perfectly pleasant mall. I don't think it has to do with the sign that's posted. I mean, we have a sign here that says firearms are prohibited, and it's not like that's our first, that's, that's not like it's our, 
It's our first and last effort at security here. I don't know why we have to post these things. Anyway, Edmund Burke, um, he said, Manners are more important than laws. Manners are what vex or soothe, corrupt or purify, exalt or debase, barbarize or refine us by a constant, steady, uniform, insensible operation like that of the air we breathe. It's just unfortunate we have to be reminded of them with signs. These are the things that we would have hoped we would have been trained in home and would have been nurtured and made so at our dining room tables and our breakfast tables. But, okay, it's just a thought. I, I found it amusing, and I thought it interesting. And maybe we should only go to malls that have posted signs of civility. I don't know. I would have thought we would have just accepted it. Maybe we're in a land of wild animals. I don't know. Okay, just a thought. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. One of the um, one of the things, you know, Hugh Hallman's coming in and we'll be talking with him. We, Hugh and I got started doing these Tuesdays together during the COVID uh, mandates and hysteria. I think it started probably back in April of 2020. And um, one of the things that we couldn't tell at the time, we both we both knew that this was going to drive society apart and pit each other against each other. We Not us, but pit individual against individual, American against American, family member against family. We knew that in this highly divisive time we lived in, and I don't know if people remember, pre-COVID, it's not as if we were one big happy family here in America. Things were pretty darn divisive. We knew this would make things worse. This would exacerbate an already tender situation. What I don't think we knew, and I'll ask him about this, but what I don't think we knew is that we would be lied to. I think we assumed a lot of incompetence. I think we assumed a lot of guessing. I think we assumed a lot of certainty where certainty wasn't warranted. I think we assumed a lot of what you might call authoritarian personality disorder. But I don't think we assumed that we would be lied to. And that might have been a failure. I'll speak for myself. It might have been a failure on my part. Noah Rothman writes that Dr. Anthony Fauci is not happy with what he regards as the popular distortions of his pandemic record. In a... um, In a sprawling exit interview with the New York Times reporter David Wallace-Wells, the outgoing director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, makes little effort to hide his bitterness. Confronted with the criticism that so much of the public health guidance in this period was less about epidemiology and more reflective of the Biden White House's economic, political, and social priorities, Fauci bristled at the implication he, he says, quote, certainly there could have been a better understanding of why people were emphasizing the economy. But when people say Fauci shut down the economy, it wasn't Fauci. The CDC was the organization that made those recommendations. I happen to be perceived as the personification of the recommendations. But show me a school that I shut down and show me a factory that I shut down. Never. I never did. I gave a public health recommendation that echoed the CDC's recommendations, and people made a decision based on that. But I never criticized the people 
who had to make the decisions one way or the other. Close quote. On a human level, Fauci's irritations are understandable. He resents the suggestion that the CDC could or even should behave like a political body, which is why it was absurd for the Biden White House to hold fast to the notion that Congress had provided the CDC with the authority to, for example, abrogate the rights of American property owners by implementing a moratorium on evictions. That's not Fauci's fault exactly. But nor did the doctor register his dissatisfaction with the mid-pandemic status quo that so empowered him. We don't have a document with Fauci's signature on it authorizing the shuttering of schools and business. We do, however, have an extensive record of his public statements indicating that shutting schools and businesses was the right course of action. In April 2020, he said, quote, if you have a situation where you don't have a real good control over an outbreak and you allow children together, they will likely get infected, close quote. The doctor proffered this definitive observation in response to a reporter who asked him if Florida Governor DeSantis' decision to allow in-person education on school grounds was wise. Quote, people under 25 have died of the coronavirus disease in the United States of America. Close quote. What conclusion would a school administrator, uh, administrator who, like so much of the nation, hung on Fauci's every word in the early stages of the pandemic, take away from this admonition? But that in-person education was an unnecessary risk. As early as May 2020, Fauci all but ruled out the prospect of a safe return to school rooms. Quote, the idea of having treatments available or a vaccination to facilitate the reentry of students in the fall term would be something that would be a bit of a bridge too far, close quote, he insisted. That summer, Fauci engaged in a public relations campaign with the aim of scaring young people into withdrawing from the outside world in the areas of the country with high COVID-19 transmission rates. Quote, you have a responsibility to yourself because I think thinking that young people have no deleterious consequences is not true. He scolded America's youth. Quote, we're seeing more and more complications in young people. Close quote. On the eve of the fall semester, the doctor had begun to entertain the notion that some schools in low-transmission regions could begin to consider investigating the prospect of possibly ruminating on the value of thinking about reopening schools, maybe. At the same time, however, he added that states with high rates of infection may want to pause before they start sending the kids back to school for a variety of reasons, his words. A year later, April 2021, amid a resurgence of the virus, Fauci bemoaned the public's diminishing enthusiasm for COVID-related mitigation measures. Indeed, their flippant disregard for the advice emanating from the public health bureaucracy, Fauci said, might just compel policymakers to punish them once again with something like a second wave of lockdowns. Quote, we're essentially tempting another wave. That would be a setback for public health. But that would be a psychological setback, too, because people have what we call COVID-19 fatigue, and we don't want to have to go back to shutting things down, close quote. What we? That is an odd thing for the doctor to suddenly threaten the nation with if he, in fact, lacked the authority to act on it and would never advocate such a thing in the first place. For months, Fauci has tried to retcon the nation into believing that he never advocated COVID-related shutdowns of any sort. Those assertions are in conflict with Fauci's rather unambiguous boast to reporters in October 2020. Quote, I recommended to the president that we shut the country down. Close quote. There's no ambiguity in that. 
No room for good or bad faith interpretation. Fauci's frustration with those who are setting the record straight today is a product of his own arrogance. He projected absolute confidence in his assessment of his own talents and foresight during the pandemic. Now that this confidence proved misplaced, he has been reduced to attacking the credibility of those whose only offense was to record his public comments. None of this, none of it gets into the lies about herd immunity. None of it gets into what had to be a lie about face masks. And none of it even gets to the quote that he now says, we probably went the wrong, we probably went the wrong way with face masks. None of it. So I think as a look back test to all of this, what I'm trying to get at here is we assumed too much good faith on people we never should have put faith in whatsoever, good or otherwise. They never earned it. They didn't deserve it. And they're lying about the record now in real time. How do you think the Biden economy uh, is uh, doing, folks? We've got banks failing, stock market volatility, a possible recession on the horizon. What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed? An investment where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio that delivers an up to 10.25% fixed rate of return. We're talking about our friends at Y-Refi. Y-Refi is local. I encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I've been there. I can tell you, you will not get a sales pitch, and no one's going to ask you to sign anything. They just like talking about what it is they do. When you meet with the team at Y-Refi, you'll see why I trust them so much and like them so much, and that you will too. A due diligence-approved firm, as I say, you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or call them at 888-YREFI-34. 888-YREFI-34. The other interesting thing about this Fauci profile in the New York Times is this must be... The 10th profile of Fauci, big spread of Fauci in the New York Times. It must be. He left office several months ago and did a big exit interview then. I remember because we quoted it. I remember because we quoted it at length. What what does Shakespeare say in Coriolanus? Stop troubling the poor with begging. Can we stop troubling this country with Anthony Fauci? Can, can, can the guy go into quiet retirement with some degree of the shame he deserves without keeping trying to revive him with his nonsensical retrospective revisions of history? Here's a part from the New York Times piece yesterday. Of course, there were mistakes and missteps, including some by Fauci describing the threat to the country as minuscule in February 2020, for instance. Okay. Start right there. Nothing roiled this country so much as anything I can think of since 9-11-2001 as what was done here about and said with regard to COVID. Nothing. It upended and changed everything. Consequences, 
we have today, consequences we will be trying to deal with for a lot of years to come. Why would anyone trust Fauci, elevate him, put him on a pedestal, and say, this guy's the expert who got it so monumentally wrong the month before everything changed in February of 2020 when he said the threat to this country is minuscule? Why did we ever listen to him again to get something so monumentally wrong, or if not wrong, something he lied about and made it not minuscule, but maximal? Why we ever paid attention to this guy, I have no idea.